Hello, welcome to Human Tech, a podcast about the intersection between humans and technology. My name is Guthrie. I'm here with Susan. Hi. Okay. And then I'm also here with uh, Dean Barker, our uh, longtime collaborator UX expert. Hi, Dean. Hello, Guthrie and Susan. Good morning. Um, so, so we're going to be doing quite the, I don't know, you want to call it uh, series, treatise, <laughs> uh, something like that, um, that Dean and Susan are going to be leading. So I mean, I'll, I'll be around, but you guys are going to be spearheading this sort of project. Um, I can briefly set it up in that you guys have been thinking about UX for a long time. Uh, yeah, we don't even want to say how long. We're not going to admit it. Long time. Yeah. And so uh, you guys have a lot of thoughts on the subject. You've sort of seen many wars, many battles, um, and uh, there were just things that you wanted to talk about, clarify, chat about. And so you guys have a long, fun list. This is a uh, series that will go between three and 17 episodes, depending <laughs> on how far we go. So we have that level of structure. <laughs> that's, that's, that's precisely that's, right. It's yeah. pretty yeah. accurate. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, uh, Dean and Susan, what is our topic today then? Yeah. Where are Dean, we starting? Introduce the topic. So this is, uh, it's pretty wonky actually, but we want to talk about object orientation in UX design and the history of objects and how they play into computing and design is deep and rich. And this came about from our discussion of the mini series on of three to 17 different topics, all related to, um, I think what we kind of referred to as the roots of UX, right? So going back to some of the foundations of HCI and human factors and some of the the lost art, which, you know, some people are trying to bring back in different ways, and we certainly have our perspective on it. So studying the roots and trying to bring them into contemporary use and a contemporary frame, including uh, object orientation. Yeah, and, and if, if I can tell a short story, am I allowed? Well, it doesn't matter. I'm going to do it anyway. Um, I had a conversation right before this meeting here. Uh, I was on with a client and we were talking about some designs that they were doing and they had done some user testing of their designs and they said, oh, and here's what we found out in our user testing. When it came to doing this, this particular thing, people want to pick um, the the object they're working on first and then decide, you know, then pick the action they want to take on it. And I was like, uh-huh. <laughs> and they said, we didn't think they'd want to do it that way. We think we thought they'd want to, you know, say, oh, I want to make, I want to edit this. I went, they would choose the action first and then choose the object they wanted to work on. And I, and I actually said, well, this is something that's, you know, been an interest um, of mine and of many people for a long time. And I, um, Dean, I'm working on, we're finishing up a second edition of one of our, 
one of my books in which we have a small section on this, um, Object Action Orientation. And then I told them the story about, you know, I first learned about this from a video that Xerox Park did uh, in the 1980s in which they did researched in the real world, not the digital world, do people interact first with an object and then decide what to do with it? Or do they, right? I mean, they did this kind of basic research and found out that, yes, people tend to choose the object and then take the action upon it. And so this really, to me, is very fundamental. It does go to the roots of UX. If you know how people interact with objects in the real world, and then you can do research about whether that's the same way they interact in the digital world, which in this case it is. Um, you know, I think this question about, uh, it opens up this whole question about objects, objects and design, and about taking that into account and and doing your your design work based on this. Um, and I do think of it as kind of a lost art. I mean, I never lost it, right? I never stopped teaching it. Uh, but sometimes I think it's one of those things that, that, you know, people get all involved in whatever the latest rage is and the latest thing to do in Figma or whatever and forget about some of these basic basic concepts. So that's what we want to delve into, Guthrie, is we want to do the series about objects, essentially. And and I think, um, and Dean, I'll, I'll let you just take it away. I know you have a, a whole list of things to talk about, but I think one of the things that, that made us want to do this series and one of the things that kind of surprised us was to realize, understandably, that a lot of people don't know about this or think it's brand new. It's like, oh, this started in 2015. And we're like, uh, no, <laughs> it started a long, long time ago. So Dean, I'm sure that we are going to, you know, delve into some history of, of objects stuff as we go through our series. But um, what do you, for this first episode, of the series, what is it you want to concentrate on in in this episode? Well, I uh, <clears throat> I wanted to talk a little bit about just what objects are in general. You've already sort of introduced that, and then talk about thinking in objects, and uh, then their role in history from a computing standpoint. Okay. All right. And, uh, if we continue on from there, the evolution into what you were talking about a little bit with uh, some of the details of the objects and some of the nitty gritty for how we use it in UX design, including from a process standpoint. Um, that All should right. be enough to get everybody uh, well attuned to the method. All right. So before we dive into all of that, I have one first question for you. Yeah. Why is it important? Why should we care about objects? in UX design? Uh, so when people say look and feel, they often don't really know how to precisely define that, right? It's kind of a vague construct. And the look is somewhat obvious from a software design standpoint. But what is the feel? The feel comes from good interaction design. And <clears throat> good interaction design, what we would think of as intuitive interaction design, really comes from meeting the user's mental model and that comes from 
primarily this whole notion of object orientation, right? Because it's related to how we think, how we perceive the real world. And that's the power of object-oriented design. Yeah, I remember when I f- did my first um, online Udemy video course about, um, it was called The Secrets of Intuitive Design, yeah. because everyone uses that word intuitive. Right. And then basically what I said was, okay, well, when you're talking about something being intuitive, you're, I'd said exactly what you're saying, Dean, you you're talking about the user's mental model, and if you're going to talk about the user's mental model, then you have to design a conceptual model, and the way you do that is with objects. So, yeah, I agree with you. That's that's yeah. why it's, it becomes so critical. So really what, you know, what we're going to talk about in this series is how to, how to make usable, intuitive interactions yeah. in your products. It's the secret sauce. Right? It is. All right. So having introduced all of that, go for it. D- dive in here. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll just kind of give a few thoughts. And I, I think the, the first uh, topic is really to talk about what is object orientation and object oriented design. And so, you know, it seems self-evident, right? Like the idea that our world is made up of objects. And so from a human factors standpoint, this gets to kind of the basics of human factors and sensation and perception, right? As we navigate through the three-dimensional world, we see objects, right? Like I see on this desk, I see my pen, I see my headphones, which are no longer working. I see these objects sitting around. And, you know, to your point about intuitive design, right? Like, okay, the Don Norman thing about objects and affordances. I see this coffee cup and it has a handle and therefore that is a signifier, a signal that I can grab it and use it and make sure that I get my morning coffee. So, so, you know, the, the idea is that our world is made up of objects. And so then that gets into the whole notion of how we think about our world And as you were saying before, thinking in terms of objects, and I I definitely want to get into some of the cognitive and philosophical things, but just from a, from an introduction, I think the fundamental idea from a psychology standpoint is, is sense-making, right? As we see objects, we need to make sense of them. That's where the idea of affordances comes in. What can I do with this thing, right? I, I see movement in the bushes, there's a thing there. Is it friend or foe, right? Like I need to discern from that thing based on certain attributes, including its behavior, right? What, what it is and what I can do with it and how useful it is or how dangerous it is, uh, dangerous it is. And so uh, to that end, I just wanted to provide a a definition. This is from uh, Christopher Wickens's uh, engineering psychology book, um, the various editions, but I thought this was a good definition of objects. An object is said to have three features, surrounding contours or connectedness or connectedness between the parts, rigidity of motion of the parts relative to other objects in the scene, right? So that gets to the whole perception issue and familiarity, which is really interesting, right? Because the more familiar something is, the more that we can understand it and make sense of it. And so um, it's, it's really, about this whole idea of objects 
taking center stage in our mental world. And then the question becomes, as we go from that idea in the real world into our virtual world of computing, you know, focused as being software designers, right? Digital designers, UX designers, interaction designers, whatever terminology we want to use. Um, how do we take that understanding of how people think and use it to our advantage in design? So that is what, to me, this whole idea of object orientation is uh, in not just user experience design, but in computing in general. So some might argue that, okay, but we're talking, if we're talking about designing in the digital space, not in the physical real world, we don't have to follow those preconceptions and those rules that, that things have evolved and things have changed and people are used to, um, you know, digital design that is separate from physical design. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that that's true. I think we do have to worry about it. I, and, you know, I guess this is the thing, as I was um, dusting off some material and doing some, some new research and preparation, one thing that occurred to me, and I, I don't know that I've seen anybody write about this, although actually I had a, a, a conversation with Theo Mandel uh, the other day, and, and he sort of implied this, but um, and for people who probably don't know Theo. Theo was one of the people who was in the uh, in the team and the original uh, object-oriented UI design uh, work that went on post-Xerox Park at, at IBM. So it was really IBM. We'll get to the history in a bit, but it was really IBM that sort of formalized this and, and, and codified it as, as method. But, um, but we were having this conversation and I think he used the phrase object-ish or something like that, right? And and what happens is we make that transition into the digital world. Like people do this somewhat intuitively, right? And you you can and will kind of like your your discussion about the the usability test or whatever it is that that you were in. You can and will as a designer and as a as a developer as a systems person do a certain amount of this naturally. But there's a continuum where a design, an application, a system can be more or less object oriented, right? And so I think that the question is how much is a, of that is appropriate and, and uh, in what cases, right? And, and we'll get into that when we talk more about the Yeah, and, and I also want to bring up the fact that, you know, if we're, I think sometimes people um, conflate object design, object-oriented design as we're talking about it, with uh, clear metaphors to real-world physical objects. And, and that's not what we're saying. I mean, certainly you might have in your software, in your app, an, an object that is the same as or very similar to an object in the physical world. Um, you know, like a camera or something, yeah. uh, or a microphone, and and there's a physical one on your desk, and then there's also like this digital one on the screen, and you're setting doing settings for that. But there, you can talk about objects and be talking about digital objects. You know, we create lots of containers and and pieces in order for people to interact digitally with whatever tasks they're doing. Um, 
and there might there there's there's objects that you choose and design for your app or your software that don't have a direct correlation to a physical object in the real world but it's still an object that someone is going to be interacting with in your app or your software so i, I you know don't assume when we talk about objects that everything we're saying, oh, everything on the screen has to be like a physical object in the real world, because we're not saying that. What we're saying, though, is that humans and the way they think and the way they interact with the world, including the digital world, yeah. they have this tendency to, uh, to, to interact with the world in terms of objects and actions upon those objects. So yeah. I just wanted to make that clear, because I think sometimes people think we're saying, you know, oh, a button needs to look like a real physical button. You know, we're talking about that level, and that—that's not—that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about conceptually thinking of something as an object to choose and then take action upon. Yeah, that, and that's the whole idea behind conceptual modeling and, and mental models, right? Is that you're using the idea of a thing. I, I would say I think you bring up a great point about the use of metaphor because that's kind of the obvious way to think about. You know, you have the recycle bin in Windows, the trash can and, and the Mac OS, right? Like, here's the thing and I can, uh, it, it's this whole idea in, in interaction design of direct manipulation, right? Like I can click on it, drag it, throw on, uh, drag it, throw things in it, whatever, right? Like those, those sorts of things. And we'll, we'll talk about that more in depth later, but all metaphors are manifestations of objects, but not all objects manifest as metaphor. Right. right. That's the whole thing about conceptual modeling. Um, and, you know, you, you bring up another another interesting idea. Um, and I, I want to use that to kind of transition into this this notion of thinking in objects and object oriented thought. And the way you described it really implies this idea of abstraction. Right. How concrete or how abstract is an object in an interface? And this gets to that vagueness and that fuzziness of cognition, right? How do how do we think about this? And in one of our discussions about you know lost art and the roots of the field and everything else, we were going into the the weeds a little bit on uh, on cognition and really talked about the beginnings of object orientation and uh, some of the some of the philosophy even that preceded psychology. So. Uh, I'll, I'll kind of give some thoughts and then maybe you can respond to that and, okay. and elaborate. Um, there is this idea in psychology, kind of psych 101 of object permanence, right? And it's coming out of developmental psychology and Piaget and, you know, a baby sees a thing and does the baby recognize if that thing like a toy goes away that, well, it's not away forever, it's going to come back. And at a certain age as a, as a toddler, I think it is, I can't remember precisely, you know, they, they develop this sense of object permanence. Your dog has that same problem, right? Like every time you leave and come back, your dog's like, oh, you're back. I didn't know you were going to come back. And so uh, that really is kind of the beginnings from a psychology standpoint. Frankly, I think a lot of the literature around uh, object-based thought, such as it is, there's not, um, I don't believe there's a ton that, from the psychology realm that really centers on this outside of the developmental literature, developmental psychology liter literature, right? And so, you know, we make certain assumptions about that, and I think those assumptions are valid, but 
there's more to be done and there's an opportunity to really, I think, elaborate um, how we think about objects, what that means for adults versus infants, right? How that may or may not be different. I, I've got thoughts that I want to explore on that uh, here once we get past the kind of the, the beginnings of this. But then also that idea from a developmental psychology standpoint of us thinking in objects really relates to some of the philosophy that preceded psychology before psychology was even a discipline. And that's one thing we were talking about. And so uh, I don't want to go too far into the psychology yet. Mm -hmm. I've got a couple subtopics I, I'd, I'd like us to address, but let's start about sort of the beginnings and sort of the, you know, proto ideas around object orientation from a psychology and philosophy perspective. Okay. So you thoughts. have ideas or you want me to give you my thoughts? Go for it. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I don't think in psychology it necessarily talks about it much in terms of objects. The, the two phrases I think that, that psychology talks about it and the research that's been done are probably that, that's relevant, probably have to do with the whole idea of categories mm -hmm. and humans um, organizing information into categories and what, you know, that, that, um, you know, that tends to develop mainly, I mean, object permanence to, is, as you mentioned, is earlier, is that toddler phase. But the whole idea of being able to categorize information that occurs somewhere around the age of seven or so. Um, so, uh, you know, if you think about children and anybody who's had children know that, you know, around that age, it's just, they children become obsessed with categories. You know, is this, <laughs> you know, is this red? Is this not red? Is this, uh, is a dog a mammal? Is a fish a mammal? I mean, you know, it's like, and, and if you look at a lot of children's games for that age group, it's all about categories, you know? Uh, and, and cause that's just when that whole idea really comes into play. And the, so categories. And then the other thing in psychology that relates is the idea of schema. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's kind of like a contain that container idea. So for instance, you know, uh, most, most people, if you say the word, you know, a head, a head, like in a part of the body, you know, you could talk about, oh, what, what's in a head? Oh, well, there's eyes and ears and nose, right? You could talk about eyes as a, as a schema. What, what constitutes an eye? Oh, well, there's the eyeball and the, the eyelid and the eyelash, right? We, we have this capability as humans and we like to do this. Um, where we collect things together and and turn that into a thing. Um, and it gets even more complex. You know, for instance, there's research on when someone is an expert at something, like if, if someone's an expert chess player, they can look at uh, uh, the, a board with chess pieces in the middle of a game, and, you know, they can tell you, where that game is at and and what the last move likely was and what the next move should be for the white side and kind of what's going on. Whereas someone who doesn't know chess looks at that board and it just looks very random, right? I don't know. There's a board and there's pieces on the board. So, you know, then there, there are novice and expert schemas about things. So I think that um, 
in psychology, probably if I had to say what's the research that ties into objects, I would say it's probably schema and probably categories. But yeah, in the field of you know psychology research, and I could be wrong. I could be wrong, but I don't think there's a lot of work that goes on specifically that's called object research. Yeah, yeah. I I, uh, I was disappointed when I did a literature review. The other thing that became very clear, and I've had this for other projects, especially in the last few years that I've been working on uh, and teaching, right? Like I teach human computer interaction at a university and so necessarily delve into some of this. The uh, This is a complete tangent, but the world of psychology isn't one thing, right? So there's the developmental psych, there's the cognitive psych, there's the ed psych. And uh, it's as if sometimes they're not even talking to one another. Absolutely. That's true. Yeah. Very strange. Um, but you, you know, you touched on this idea of schema and I'd be interested in your thoughts from a from a psychologist's perspective about how it relates to kind of the, what I think of as the proto or, or seminal idea around objects, right? And um, I would say it really goes back to philosophy and the whole idea that, that Plato had of, of forms, right? The theory of forms and the platonic form. And so as I understand that, the the thinking is that things have an ideal form and humans think from a philosophical standpoint in terms of things, objects, right? Nouns from a language standpoint. And we have, talk about abstraction, we have in our head a, a vision, an idea, a concept of what the perfect version of that thing is, the platonic form, right? And so everything we experience in the real world is effectively benchmarked against that, right? So curious about your thoughts about how, you know, philosophy plays into that, how Plato becomes cognitive psychology and how that relates to schema. All right. So, that, but, but you should know, that philosophy makes me crazy. Okay. I, it so, really does. Okay. Yeah. So just for the sake of everyone's clarity, <laughs> can we make sure we uh, define the Plato thing for everyone? So we're all on the same page. What do you mean? Guthrie? Didn't well, you referred it? to Plato and Plato's forms. Can we do, do can we, what's, what's the definition of that? Uh, well, so, so, uh -oh. Uh -oh. And I'm like, no, let's not. <laughs> and Dean's like, oh, cool. I'm going to go look at the we're going to answer the question he's, yeah, he's about what are your thoughts book. about Plato's forms, we okay. have to make sure we have it correctly. Oh, God. He's opening up a book that says Plato. Okay, well, I'm going to go take no, a break says, now. Play, and you guys, play can for you the audience, send me a text when you're done. No, it's, it's not, not Plato. Not Play-Doh like. We're all getting out our little colored clay. <laughs> P-L-A-T-O. Plato. All right, go ahead, Dean. Uh, let's what see. is well, the I'll, what is the form or the perfect I'll, form? I'll see if I can find a. I should have I should have found the actual definition of the of the thing. Uh, and yes, it's Plato, not Play-Doh. <laughs> I like Play-Doh. I don't like Plato, but I do like Play-Doh. Uh, let's see if there's a good... Uh, While he's doing that... Do you want I, me to do it? Yeah, do you have it? 
Yeah, of course. Well, oh, you're googling it, aren't you? He's gonna look it up yeah, online, yeah. I, Dean. I, I, I See, Dean, there's this forms thing. in Wikipedia. It took. You, there's oh, you go great. online. You type. Uh, things in. All right, so fine, I'll do it. Um, we'll the theory of forms, also known as Plato Platonic idealism, yes. is a metaphysical theory attributed to the philosopher Plato, suggesting that the physical world is not as real or true as timeless, absolute, unchangeable ideas. So ideas, according to this theory, can uh, conventionally capitalized and translated to as ideas or forms, are the non-physical essences of all things, yeah. of which objects and matter in the physical world are mere imitations. So this is this is why it makes the philosophy makes Susan crazy, right? Just definitions like that. So I think the thing it gets to this idea of abstraction, right? So when we're talking about thoughts and particularly abstract thoughts, um, the the Platonic form relates to can relate to concrete things, but the origins of it is about these abstract ideas, right? So what is beauty, right? Beauty is a thing, right? Uh, justice is a thing. We have in our head ideas about truth, beauty, goodness, liberty, all, all these concepts, these ideas, and the platonic form is the ideal form. And it's less about being a philosopher and more about just this idea that when we reference the idea of a thing, whether it's in the abstract or the concrete, as it relates from a design perspective to user mental models, there are certain expectations. That's why I like the idea of the platonic form, because what it does is it establishes expectations, right? Susan, you, remember, you referenced, you know, a head in schema. What's a good head look like? Right. What does that even? Yeah, mean? yeah, and but, that's, but those are things that have variation. Like but no, but head, I think, justice. But I think the point is that that actually everything has variation, and and we don't necessarily take that into account. And that what about a spoon? A spoon has variation. It can be a big spoon, a small spoon, a tablespoon, a silver spoon. So when we are designing something, and and you know, let's just just bring it back to to practical things. So you know, I'm designing an app, and and I I you know, let's think about something like a an app that uh, is going to do video an audio production or something, you know, I mean, software that's going to do that. Or, or even, even just think about something really simple, like, you know, a ride sharing app or, um, or an app for ordering a pizza. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's complex software or uh, something really simple. We think, you know, we all have in our heads, our own mental models of what all these things mean of what a pizza means, of what an order means, of what uh, a, a video timeline means, <laughs> you know, of what uh, or a, a car service means. You know, we have these mental models, and and the mental model we have makes perfect sense to us and conforms to the Platonic idea of you know a perfect pizza or a perfect 
video timeline, whether we realize it or not. And yet, and, and we think our view of it is not only the best, our idea of it is not only the best, but we think everybody has a really similar idea. You know, it's like, well, most people. So when you're the designer and you're designing the screens and the interactions, you're like, well, yeah, this is the best way to do it. And this is the way, you know, and even if you know, even if you say, well, you know, not everyone, this, this software is for people who are new to video editing and they may not totally understand a timeline, but that's okay because I'm going to do such a great job at displaying the timeline that they will understand it. But we don't, you know, we, we forget that the mental model they have might not be the same as ours. How are we going to design this thing and what are we going to call it so that people can quickly grasp the conceptual model we're talking about and either that fits really well with their mental model and they go, oh yeah, that's what I thought was going to happen. Or it doesn't, but they can quickly go, oh, that's interesting. That's different than what I thought, but I get what they're doing and I can use this. And and maybe even this version of this thing, the timeline, is better than the one I'm used to. So it, it is all about the decisions we make about what the objects are, what the containers are, how we display it, what we call things. And, and it's, it, you know, this is what makes the object and the view of that object in the, in the digital product, um, makes it easy to understand and grasp and, and usable versus confusing and frustrating. Um, so, you know, this is why it's so important because this is kind of at the heart of how people think and how people relate to the physical and the digital digital world. I mean, you know, we have there's an enormous amount of mental activity yeah. <laughs> and abstraction that goes on in people's heads even when they're doing something really simple. And and some of it's conscious and some of it's on or subconscious, right? right. Like that's that's part of the issue about conceptual modeling is that it, it manifests as object orientation sometimes even manifests not even in explicit objects but in implicit objects right a thing is implied it's not even necessarily named or labeled yet in our head you know we have an idea about that thing and that gets back to some of this stuff around the, the platonic form and about how we think I, I want to drill down on uh, something you've touched on in that in that last description a couple of times and it's what we what we call things yeah right and because i think that is that is at the core and at the root of our understanding of objects how they can be used from a design standpoint and our understanding of thought and one of the issues that i'm fascinated by and i have a perspective on is this whole relationship between language and thought. It's the chicken and egg issue, right? Does language come before thought or does thought come before language? What is the relationship between the two? And this is this whole idea of uh, linguistic determination, right? And I'm looking at my notes because I think the book that got me thinking about this is some of, this is the trouble with having. Catherine, have you, have you caught on yet that Dean really likes books? I think books are good. 
books are a very controversial opinion. Books are well, good. <laughs> um, so I recently had to uh, clear off my entire bookcase, um, and because of how things we were doing in the house, and we had to move the bookcase, and I had to empty the entire bookcase, and I, I didn't think I had. I mean, I I've actually pruned down my books over the years. I didn't think I had that many until I had to take them off, and then I realized how many I had. And as I was going through them, I was like, "Oh yeah, I don't even need to keep these." And Dean was like, "I love books. Send them to me." So I packed up a box, two boxes, of books and sent them to Dean. Now, what Dean doesn't know that I'm going to now reveal is a Dean yesterday another box of books <laughs> got put in the mail to you. Awesome. Because so as I was putting the books back on the shelf, I picked another batch that I thought, I don't want these either. I'm going to send these to Dean. So I just just know that there's another box of books coming. Anyway, go ahead, Dean. Sorry, Guthrie. Yeah. We did a little Well, thank you for as a hoarder. I appreciate <laughs> uh, Yeah, my... My wife is very excited whenever the big boxes of books show oh, up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's not going to talk to me anymore either. Okay. Um, okay, so I found – so this is uh, Stephen Pinker's The Stuff of Thought, uh, and the subtitle is Language is a Window into Human Nature. And so he's got a section on linguistic determinism, and it's a thread throughout the whole book. But there, there's an interesting quote here that I like, uh, this passage anyway. If language provides a label for a com complex concept, that could make it easier to think about the concept because the mind can handle it as a single package when juggling a set of ideas rather than having to keep each of its components in the air separately. It can also give the concept an additional label in long-term memory, making it more easily retrievable than ineffable concepts or those with more roundabout verbal description. Right? Yeah. And that, I mean, that, that describes, I think really well, the whole idea of a schema. I mean, that's why we have schema, right? Because we can say this is, this is this, and it's made up of these component parts. But I, I to me, again, back, you know, I'm going to be a broken record here. Oh, I can't use that metaphor anymore. That's a generational <laughs> uh, thing. An yeah. interrupted stream. That. <laughs> yeah. Although, although, although turntables are coming back into That's vogue, true. so yeah. people yeah, might understand yeah. what it means to have a broken record. Anyway. Um, I'm going to be saying the same things over and over. That's what I meant to say. Um, because language, uh, you know, some t I find myself sometimes these days in conversation with UX teams or developers about the design of a particular interface. And I will, you know, I'll say, that's, you know, we have to talk about the fact that you're calling this whole thing this term. And they think they think it is just a terminology issue. Right. Oh, instead of calling it that, we can call it something else. But really what it is, it's, it's an object issue. It's an object decision issue. Because it's not just the name that you use, but it is what you are referring to, right? The schema behind that, the object behind that, the container behind it. And, and so it's not just the word. So the word is really important and the linguistics of it is, are really important. But part of the reason the word is so important is because if you use the right word, 
it invokes an entire schema, an entire, uh, you know, container, an entire abstraction of the whole thing. You know, it's not just that I'm calling it, you know, cup versus mug, right? Which I, I it, it might be a larger it, object issue than that. It's the idea of the thing. And, and I want to kind of defer this conversation to another section when we get into the details of objects, but, yeah. you know, to, to tease it a little bit, there's different types of objects, different levels of objects, right? Different granularity. There's this relationship between classes and objects, right? So, and there's what, different views of the object. So you can have one object like calendar, but then you might have different views on the calendar, like weekly, monthly, daily. So, yeah, so this is why it starts to get a little complicated, um, but also why it's, why it's so critical. Yeah. Because I have to make, as, as an interaction designer, as a UX person, I have to make decisions, and I have to say, look, we're not going to have five different objects, one of which is the daily appointment, another is the weekly um, the weekly uh, set of appointments, another is, you know, your month of activities. We're not going to make those separate objects. That's all going to be one object, and the object is calendar. And those yeah. things are going to be different views. And if you start to make that decision, right, that changes your whole interface. Oh, so that means we have to choose one of the views when they first come in, but then we want a way for them to quickly, you know, choose a different view, but right there on the screen. So let's have them, they, they click here, it changes to the monthly view, they click here, it changes to the weekly view. So it changes your design. The objects you choose and the level of abstraction and things like the views of the objects, and whether you make something, whether you, you decide, no, we're going to have two different objects, or no, that's one object with different views. I mean, these decisions radically change or should radically change what the, the screen looks like, what the interaction is like, what the, the actions are that people take. So it's not just some little, you know, abstract fun thing that Dean and Susan talks about. I mean, it has real world implications for design. And in, you know, in our opinion, it has real world implications for the, the usability yeah. of the design. Yeah. And so, you know, that gets to this whole issue. We talk about conceptual modeling and mental, mental modeling. One of the things that has been lost, I think, in the literature over the years, people talk about mental models a lot, but what they don't talk about is what in the uh, early days uh, with this stuff at IBM, they described as uh, the user's conceptual model versus the designer's model versus yeah. the developer's model, right? And so, yeah. you know, the idea of, well, is this an object? Is this a sub-object? Is this a class? Is this a thing? Yep. How do we present it? You know, there's a, a fair amount of subjectivity in that. And so for us, the the trick is when we say object orientation is the, the magic ingredient or the secret sauce or something, is the idea of using that to meet the mental's, the user's mental model, right? So the right answer 
isn't so much, well, I think this is an object and this is a class, but how are the users thinking about that, right? So we need to understand the user's mental model so that as a designer, we can create a design model that then matches that. And that's where intuitive software comes from. But, or if I can make it even more yeah, complicated. Yeah. Yes. So a lot of the times what we want to do is we want to understand the user's mental model um, or mental models because not all users are the same. And oftentimes we're designing something that's going to be used by slightly different target audiences and they may have slightly different mental models. So now what the heck are we going to do? Right. So, um, but sometimes we design. So when, if, if your conceptual model matches the user's mental model, that's when they find the product easy to use, easy to learn. They're happy. This is great. And when your conceptual model doesn't match the user's mental model, that's when they say, I don't know what's going on. This is hard and so on. But some, so we usually want to match those, but sometimes we don't. Sometimes we say, look, we know they have this mental model, but we're going to change their mental model because for a variety of reasons, we need to do that. And it's advantageous to do that. And, you know, Guthrie, you know this, and Dean, you've probably heard me use this. You know, I use the the smartphone as an example because before the smartphone came out, um, there were definite mental models about what a mobile phone was, and many people uh, are too young to have lived through it, but they've seen it. They've seen pictures. You know, it was a a flip phone. It 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 had buttons. Um, it didn't do all that much. <laughs> you know, you could send a text message, which was not easy to do. It had a small screen, and the, the buttons were took up as much space as the screen. And that's what a mobile phone was. And so, you know, Apple, in designing the iPhone, they did not design the iPhone based on the current mental model. They essentially wanted, you know, they did something different. It was a computer, but you held it in your hand and there wasn't a mental model for that. And it didn't have buttons. The buttons were on the screen and there wasn't a mental model for that for a mobile device. So they purposely designed a conceptual model that did not fit people's mental models. And you can do that, but you have to know when you do that, that that's a huge risk and you have to be able to set the mental model quickly. I mean, that's actually where, where, you know, training comes in, but you've got, you have to be cognizant of that. You're blowing things up and, and then it has to be designed like a hundred times better (laughs) than, than normal. So sometimes I have teams that say, oh, well, we're going to, you know, no, we're going to do a new conceptual model. We're going to break their mental model. It's like, okay, but that's a, that's a heavy haul. So now you really have to be extremely cognizant of the conceptual model you're designing um, because you know it doesn't fit. And you've got to make it easy for people to look at it and go, whoa, and then create a brand new mental model, which is not an easy thing for humans to do. It takes time. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, right? Because um, it's the old yarn about uh, 
Henry Ford, if I'd asked people what they wanted, you know, they would have said a which a is not he didn't actually say that. Yeah. I just want you to know that, but okay. Um fact but, checker you know, that, as I am. That is the uh you know, so it's the idea of you meet people all the time who are like, well, Steve Jobs didn't ask the universe. Yeah, he didn't, right. He didn't follow their mental model, so we don't have to either. Right, right. To which I would say, well, you're not Steve Jobs. <laughs> right, exactly. So I think for, for most of us in most most situations when we're doing kind of work-a-day design, you know, they're pre-existing concepts that we want to leverage in mental models. I would argue that in the case that you're talking about, when you're talking about invention, you're talking about innovation, it's extremely disruptive. Yes. Right. So there are other considerations. Learnability is a is a huge consideration. But sort of the idea of walk up usability and the the sense making being immediate is it makes it even more important, right? Because the user doesn't necessarily yes. have an idea of how it works. So I want to use this as a uh, as a pivot back to something you were talking about uh, a little bit earlier. I think it, in those cases it makes it even more important that you're nailing the aspects of reality that users can grab onto through things like semantics so that they can quickly get up to speed and understand a thing so that they don't abandon it, right? Like there's this right. whole notion of abandonment of technology. And when you're doing something that's new and innovative, you're very much at risk of being abandoned if people can't understand the bloody thing, right. you know, straight away, right? And so right. what you said earlier, I think is really important. It's this idea of uh, labeling and oh, it's just words or it's just semantics, right? No, it's not just semantics. And I want to come back to this whole idea of linguistic determination and psychology with that because it is this relationship between words and thought, right? And so linguistic determination is this idea that, that words determine our thought. I think psychologists like Pinker reject that. The linguistics, of course, have a vested interest in promoting that. And so, you know, what's real, what's that relationship? I have some thoughts, but I'm not Pinker or even Susan Weinshank, but I will say that there is this relationship between language and thought, and as Pinker describes in, in that the one book, The Stuff of Thought, and culture, right? So like one of the stories he talks about is some indigenous tribe that they didn't have a word for counting, which means, which didn't mean that they didn't understand counts of things or numbers of things, but they had more of an abstraction. It was it was at a different level of granularity. There was like one, two, five, and a whole bunch, right? Like that's kind of what they had words for. They didn't have words for all, all the integers. And so he he was basically making the case, as I as I recall in that passage, and there were studies done on this, that just because they had certain cultural affectations that affected their language that it, it didn't that was didn't mean that they didn't have the thoughts or the same thoughts or ideas like thoughts and ideas are universal but the the language is different and so you know the primacy from his perspective isn't on language it's on thought i would argue that much like in our profession we talk about the relationship between cognition and emotion right that it doesn't really matter because you, you simply can't decouple them. Right? Right, right. Watson and Crick, double helix, they're intertwined. Like they go together regardless. So whether the cart's before the horse or the horse before the cart, 
uh, this idea of the language that we use could not be more important, right? And, and so what we label things um, is vital, right? Is yeah, it really. Is it a cup or a mug or is it, are they glasses? Are they different types of glasses, right? Right. And, you know, it is, you know, ultimately you get to the point, especially if we're talking about digital interface, there's, I mean, and some interfaces now are not visual, right? They're, they're auditory or they're tactile, but basically there's a point at which let's just use the visual example. You know, you're looking at something and you're trying to figure out what you're looking at right? and how are you going to figure that out? Well, it's what's on there and what does it say? You know, if the words that are on there, the labels you've given things are, are critical. And if people look at the, the whole screen and then they look at a word that says, I don't know, I'm not even going to, the only examples I can think of are from this one client and I don't want to get in trouble with my NDA. So I'm just going to say, let's just say there's a word Right. And that word doesn't make any sense to you, or that that, or either you don't know what that is, or you're looking at what the other stuff on the screen, and you're looking at that word, and you're like, "What? Yeah, what is that?" Well, then, even even your example of the broken record, right? Like the language that we right, use, right? Right. It changes over to like you, you're talking about the iPhone. I, I don't think that the the phone call is labeled, but you know when you make a phone call and you say, "Well, I'm going to hang up now," well, no, you're not. Like, because that itself is a metaphor right. from having telephones that you used to hang right. up. There's so many, there's so many of these that are, you know, I mean, you're going to dial a number, uh, you know, what the heck does that mean? Um, well, to, to people who are old enough, it means something very specific and they're able to transfer that over to the new situation and they'll still say, you know, dial the number, even though there's no, no dial anymore. But I mean, I use this with the, you know, one of my favorite things to do. And you, you teach college, and and um, you know, I was recently teaching college, and one of my favorite things to do is to, you know, show the, the save icon. And ask people, what is this? Yeah. And they say it's a save icon, and it's like, yeah, but what is it a picture of? And they go, well, it's just an abstract design for saving, and I'm like, no. It's actually a, a floppy disk, and then they look at me like, "Okay, why did I? Why do I have this crazy right. person as my professor? You know, and why are we talking about this?" But um, yeah, so what you call things uh, might might be really important and might have you know that cultural or historical significance, but maybe not because so, now the save icon is its own thing. Well, a lot of that stuff is. I think it, it goes with the technology jumps. So a lot of these things you're talking about, save, you know, the ancient print um, dial. These, these are sort of things from when a technology was young and yeah. then made that jump. So when we had a smartphone, suddenly a bunch of stuff got sort of grabbed into it. Yeah. When, made, when you know word processors came came around, there's like suddenly we have a bunch of stuff that we're just sort of grabbing in, and then it just stuck around. Um, so those are those are always fun, sort of easy examples. Yeah, because they were new on the scene; they were the first ones, and so 
But it continues. What about, you know, what about the hamburger menu? What about the candy? What's it called? The candy. I don't don't know. I don't know. The... The, it's called the a, a candy what, jar. But, but what what's the ancient technology that a hamburger menu is? There isn't one. As far yeah, as I was saying, saying that's just sort of an that that one actually is sort of like you know what is it three lines? Three lines, which I guess stands for what the bun, the meat, and the bun. I don't know. That's an ancient. All right, so you know about at least the, that one is just sort of that one's pretty <laughs> abstract. Just three lines. Well, some of these are very extra abstract. So you know at at you know, the the top of like Google, and there's the nine dots, the squares yeah. within the square. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the candy. What? Where'd that come from? Uh, stars. People like using stars. <laughs> it's not stars though. It's little. No, but like for for favorites. Oh, for favorites, right? Or right. whatever. Like people, stars, like the shape of a star in various. Right, right. Why not the circles, right? And so, so there are still abstract stuff. You know, my favorite one is what is the is the refresh icon. That one still makes sense. This and is it the circle thing. Circle, but also with like the the arrow sort of at the end, eating eating it. That one, it, that one's a really good one because it's abstract, it but it actually, Where did I always that think. come from? Well, no, I don't know. Go around stuff. again. I mean, that, you know, is that yeah. what that stands for? I don't know. Yeah. So um, the, oh, the uh, paper airplane. Why is uh, paper airplane the icon for like send? Is it? In a lot of places. Oh, because yeah. you're going to go. Yes, that's that's how uh, back back when you guys were kids, that's how messages got sent. People were just sort of throwing paper airplanes it, outside of windows. <laughs> that was not how we. Thank you, Guthrie. Yeah, we, we threw rocks before paper was in the <laughs> uh, yeah, rocks, rocks with strings attached with yeah, little yeah, letters. Messages yeah, messages to. All right, so we well, need to bring this episode um, to to its close. Unfortunately. Okay. But the good news is we have another two or 17 um, to go because we have a lot of stuff to talk about. But so Dean, did you guys we, get what, anywhere? What? Were we supposed to get somewhere? No. I Yes, I think we did. If I was going to summarize, I would say we're, we started, we're introducing the concept of objects and, uh, and the linguistics of naming objects um, we're introducing an idea that is critical to the whole idea of users' mental models and critical to design of conceptual models. And um, in the in future episodes here, as we continue our series, we're going to delve into a lot of details about the objects and how you decide on objects and views and all of that. And um, then, but also what I think... Um, Dean's going to bring us that I'm I'm really interested in is kind of you know this historical look again the idea that some people out there have that this is new and and we want to show you nah it's not new and look where it came from and look how far back it goes so Dean we're going to need more books oh, oh that's not a problem I, I'm, I'm <laughs> he's got um, he's got all these that, books he sends wanna... me texts with pictures of pages and things highlighted. 
Yeah, including stuff you're you're cited in. Remember that last one? Yes, he sent me this uh, picture, Guthrie, on a text of where it oh, talks wow. about Susan Weinshank says, and I'm like, what the heck? Where is this? What wow. is this from? I didn't even made it. I don't know about that one. Or I mean, I, you have so like you know, I happen to have you know books here, and no, but know, he's got old but, books. Oh, old books. Yes. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Got, oh, Dean, okay. mention one before we before I we know what the, I know about the ancient magic. <laughs> yeah, well, like I'll I'll do things like, you know, I'll be working on this university class or something. We're going to do a thing on brainstorming. Of course, there's sort of the conventional understanding. Everybody understands brainstorming, but the thing that I always uh, and concerned with is understanding the provenance. Where does the thing come from, right? So I'll go and I'll find the book where it was originally introduced. As yeah, a he, this is this is his famous and, thing. He's like, where was this first talked about? And he'll yeah, tell you. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's not easy to find a lot of this stuff. And, and I, I was as I was preparing for this, and, and maybe in the next episode we can uh, pick up on kind of the timeline of this. You know, the Yeah, history. that would be a great idea. Let's do that. Yeah, the history of all these things gets lost, right? Yeah. Like, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you an example from management theory. Um, there is this whole idea that, well, there are four functions of management: planning, leading, organizing, and controlling. And I mean, I went to business school for undergrad. My textbook had that without a citation. It was just sort of, you know, generally accepted wisdom. But it's not it's not something that's naturally occurring. It was invented, right? Well, who invented it at when? And if you go back and you go back and you go back and you finally find some citations, a lot of it becomes recursive, right? And then eventually, if you can, depending on how patient you are and, you know, if the literature is available, you can go to the source. And then you find out, well, Henry Fail talked about this in the 40s or some such thing. And it wasn't four things. It was six things, right? And it was slightly different than when you got in your textbook, you know, however many decades later. And so, and sometimes that's just an academic curiosity. Sometimes it really makes a difference because what happens is I think we misunderstand things. Frankly, I think this object-oriented thought in our modern computing world is one of those things, right? It's, it's lost, but it also gets distorted. Yeah. Uh, and so it's something where I think it's important to understand the roots. Anyway, before we wrap, Susan, I wanted to I wanted to uh, wrap on one um, idea and anecdote to kind of put a bow around this relationship mm -hmm. between objects and thoughts, and the relationship between language and thought and culture. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, we're doing this series to talk about sort of the primacy of objects, uh, but there's a but in there. And so year, years ago, I was, I spent three years and I was, I was working in Japan. I was commuting to Tokyo. I spent three years working on this huge system for, for legal research. Um, and it was probably the most interesting project I've had in my career. We were taking a, a product from the German market. We were redesigning it and localizing it for the Japanese market, doing that with the team in the U.S. It was, you know insanely complex. And it was my first experience working uh, in Asia. And, you know, I like to think about things through an HCI and human factors perspective. So we have this idea in human factors that we have object permanence and we think about 
objects first. But as I was studying some of the literature uh, working in, in the Japanese culture, uh, one of the things I stumbled across was a book by Richard Nisbet. Nisbet, I think he teaches somewhere in Michigan, Michigan State or Western Michigan or something. Um, really good writer. And the specific book was called The Geography of Thought. Yeah, it's a great and book. It's a great book. And really, I think, interesting in terms of this idea of objects and whether or not it's a human factor or a cultural factor. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so like some of the things he talks about in terms of the studies, you, you mentioned earlier, uh, the psychological literature centered around classification. Right. And so one of the studies that he talked about was uh, what we would think of in terms of taxonomies. Right. From an information architecture standpoint, you have three things. You have cow, chicken and grass. And so. Guthrie, how would you how would you categorize those things? Well, pick two and put them together. Um, cow, chicken, and grass. Yeah. Well, I would say that one is grass. That's a that's a plant, and two are animals. Okay. So you group the animals, right? And that's precisely what we would think of as this object orientation. That well, cow and chicken are animals. They go together in a group. That is not a human thing, according to Nesbitt. Uh, but it is a cultural thing from a Western standpoint. An East Asianer would say cow eats grass and they Makes belong sense. together. Chicken is on the, on the outside of that set. And so the important thing is the relationship. So from a linguistic standpoint, you know, if you're having tea with somebody from the West, they would say more tea when they go to refill your cup, right? Because the emphasis is on the thing. Whereas somebody from Japan would refill your cup and say, drink more because the thing itself is implied. The important thing is the, the fact that you're drinking. So, you know, and like, what's reality? How much do we really know? How much do we really understand? Um, the practical upshot for me was that in terms of my traditional object-oriented thinking and objects and actions uh, and, you know, primacy on objects versus actions or, or tasks, procedures, if you will, that... I actually had to invert it for that particular redesign and it paid dividends understanding that. Right. And so I'm not saying that's the case in, in every instance, but it's a very complex thing. This relationship between thoughts, language, culture, objects, and actions. And, uh, you know, have to consider all of those things when you're actually working on taking this and doing something with it in the, in the real world. Yeah. Great point, and I do love that book. I, I read that book ages ago, Geography of Thought. I probably had it on my bookshelf somewhere, but it isn't anymore, so I can't send it to you, but you already have it, so you read it. it. <laughs> All right, well, I really look forward. Um, Guthrie, I don't know if you do, but I really look forward to continuing the uh, series. Guthrie's like, oh, my God, how many of these am I going to have to sit good. through? You guys, you guys just, just go, just go for it. Just do our thing. You joined in a little. I'm glad you joined in. Well, this is, hey, this is, you know, I am not an expert in this field, so. But you will be by the end. No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, I haven't read, I haven't read all the tomes. I know. Well, get going. That's right. <laughs> I'll, I'll send you some. It'll just re-gift. I'll, I'll send some of the books uh, to Some you. of the books I sent. Just dropping them back, to them back off to Susan. 
Yeah, and then I'll send it back to Dean. All right, looking forward to the next one, Dean. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye.